Welcome to Mind and Soul Matters, I'm Farah Feeney. Through conversations with everyday people, Mind and Soul Matters aims to broaden our understanding of mental health and spirituality and to deepen our insights into the challenges and meaning of our lives. We are thrilled to be launching our second season with our guest Australian football star, Luke McFarlane. Luke's childhood dream of playing Aussie rules football became a reality at the age of 17 when he was drafted by the Australian Football League and this came to be his career for the next 16 years. I'm really looking forward to having a soulful conversation with Luke about how his football dream almost came to an end, what motivated him to continue and how he has channeled his spiritual values to give back to the community. Welcome, Luke. It's wonderful to have you here to speak perhaps for the first time about your very personal journey. Hi, Farah. Thanks for having me. I've actually listened to a few podcasts from last season and and you seem to only interview people with a name that starts with doctor, so I'm not sure I'm in the right place, but it's it's a pleasure to be here nonetheless. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you. <laughs> well, Luke, let's start with this question that it's so many young people's dream to play in the AFL. And can you tell us how you came to play football professionally and talk us through what made you want to leave the football field? Sure. The most direct pathway into the AFL for a young footballer is via the National Draft, which is an annual event where all AFL clubs are allocated a certain number of picks that they use to draw from a pool of the best young talent in the country. Typically, players selected in the draft have been preparing for years. They're often snapped up by talent academies at 14 or 15 years of age. They play a state-level competition and they attend a draft camp where AFL clubs get to closely examine the physical and, and mental attributes of the players they're looking to draft. My story was a bit unique in that by the time I'd sort of got to middle school, high school, although my dream as a child was to play AFL, I'd actually become a bit more ambivalent or or didn't have a lot of ambition to play elite sport. I was only playing school football at the time and had designs to travel in my first year out of school. Uh, I also had hoped to study medicine. So when AFL clubs started making inquiries, I was halfway through year 12 and, and found it all a big distraction. I'd actually asked my parents to field all phone calls that were coming to our house um, because I really had no intention of playing elite sport. And so I asked mum and dad just to take all the calls and politely tell people to go away. Wow. (laughs) The story goes this one week I was at home and my dad was away and mum had lost her voice and the phone rang and there was no one else to answer the phone. So I picked up the phone and... It was actually my high school football coach. Right. And we ended up having this long conversation and and came to my attention that in order for me to become eligible to nominate for the national draft, the upcoming draft, I actually had to play a game of football at a higher level of competition, so at a district level, which I'd never done. And so my high school coach, who was aware of everything that was going on, was was really trying to convince me to play this one game, which happened to be on the weekend in a few days' time. We, we had this really good chat and the outcome of it was, look, you'll probably go out there, your high school football talent might not translate to a high level, you probably won't get a kick and then the phone call will stop ringing. So it was that idea I was quite satisfied with. So I ended up playing this 
this single game and I did probably the worst thing I could have done for someone that had no intention of, of taking this any further and that was to be the best player on the ground. Oh, no. <laughs> and I don't know why I performed so well. I mean, I think I had this sort of stuff it attitude at the time and I just went out there and just went for it and ended up performing very well and from there the tidal wave just <laughs> just grew even larger. So the it, it was the phone calls uh, tripled yeah. and and so at that point I, I recognised, it. look, perhaps this is something I need to have a look at and I started to, to speak with talent scouts and there was actually one in particular that had been watching my high school games. He'd taken a, a keen interest in me for probably a couple of years and uh, un, quite unbeknown to me had been watching my football games at high school and so he he was fairly sure I could play AFL football but we needed to see me play at a high level for that to to become a certainty and so he made contact very quickly after that and and the process began. I was drafted in the national draft that year in October. I finished my year 12 studies in November. I turned 18 and moved to Melbourne in December to start my AFL career. Wow it kind of snowballed from there. It really did. And then what happened? Well, the first year was miserable. <laughs> it was miserable. Yeah, it, was, it wasn't a fun time. My, my lack of physical and mental application was obvious to all my new teammates. I hadn't played state-level football. I hadn't attended draft camp. I hadn't been part of any development academy. And so I was, really wasn't at the level that was required. I'd pretty much leaped straight out of high school into uh, an elite sporting environment. My other... Challenges were of a social nature. My principles and perspectives on life, largely shaped by my beliefs in the Baha'i faith, weren't always in alignment with footy club culture at the time and I was isolating myself by not being one of the boys. So it wasn't an easy time. It wasn't an easy first year. And I remember speaking with Dad after uh, the first year it ended and I was back in Perth for a, a brief holiday and I admitted that I thought I'd made a mistake and I was thinking about giving it up and coming home. And we ended up having a, a really good chat and I can't remember exactly what he said but the sentiment was sub, something along the lines of sadly nothing was ever designed to be easy and I would encounter pain or discomfort in anything I chose to do with my life, whether it was this path or, or another. So, Luke, are you able to elaborate on what that pain and discomfort was about? Well, I guess it was, it was discomfort on all levels. It was physical discomfort. I was suddenly having to train at a level that I really wasn't comfortable with and so I was certainly in a lot of physical pain but I guess that that mental emotional stuff too was was quite difficult given that I didn't really feel connected to the football club because of some of my own personal beliefs and standards that I lived by and things have certainly changed in the AFL over time but back when I started the mantra was really you work hard and you play hard and to be one of the boys was to engage in all those areas, including uh, a pretty large drinking culture and, and lots of attention from females. And so they were probably the two areas where I was separating myself from the other guys. I'd, I'd been raised quite differently. So the challenge for me personally was trying to wrestle with that identity of who I was and, and the kind of life I wanted to lead. And so that was all happening over there in Melbourne, away from family. And I was only, I'd only just turned 18. So still very much in a development phase of life, a very impressionable phase of life, as a lot of 18-year-old young men are. Yeah. And just trying to sort of figure out what your pathway is going to be was, was ultimately a, 
a really big challenge but but one I, I remember wrestling with quite a lot. Mm. And again, I think a lot of young people can perhaps relate to that, that challenge in terms of what their values and standards might be. What helped you to be steadfast and firm in what and to sort of stick with your values? Yeah, I, th- I think the first thing was the values themselves, the principles themselves really resonated with me. So there was something in there where I felt it was a way I wanted to conduct myself, a way I wanted to live my life. Certainly the supports around me from home were very important. So mum and dad were, were critical through that period. And dad in particular, in terms of that conversation that we had, where we acknowledged that no matter what you're trying to do in life, you're going to encounter difficulty. Everybody does. So it's, it was an acknowledgement of that. And the key was to if you felt it was something worth pursuing, was to find a way through it and to become stronger for it. How did you find your path through that? I started focusing on the things that drew me closer to that environment and not the things that separated me. I think that was the distinction. And so I knew that pursuing excellence in your profession was a a noble trait or a noble pathway. And so I wanted to become excellent at what I was doing. I'd already played a handful of AFL games that first year, so I had a taste of the sheer excitement of performing on, on a big stage. And I wanted to get to a level where I could do that consistently. So striving for excellence in your chosen career, that was definitely something I wanted to to pursue. And then I wanted to be able to be in those spaces that perhaps didn't always align with my own personal values, but still be there and become a part of of the team in a way that, that I could. And I think the most important aspect was not to isolate myself, which I'd done in that first year, but was to be there. So I went on the footy trips and I went to the pubs and I went to the clubs and I was with the guys after the games. And as much as I could, I think that really carved out a space for me within the team, so much so that I became quite an integral part of of teams going forward. So you were with the team, you didn't socially isolate yourself, however you engaged in different behaviours, is that correct? Correct, So even though you were at the pub, Mm. you weren't drinking. Sure, yeah. Is that? Yeah, which, which wasn't always popular and it was quite confusing to a lot of people for, for those that, that no, Australian culture is, is very much about mateship and, and drinking is a big part of that. Certainly back in those times when I started, it was I had a few people say to me quite clearly, you need to be one of the boys mm. because you're isolating yourself. And I just continued to be there and not partake in the activities that I didn't want to, but I was there. And I think over the years, I just became a part of the furniture and it was always, well, Luke's here, he's not doing the th- some of the things that we're doing, but that's fine because he's part of our team and we know that on, on the most part, he values the things that we value, which is high performance, which is striving to be your best, which is teamwork, which is cooperation, which is reciprocity, which is all those high moral qualities that you need to succeed in elite sport. And do you think, I mean, we, we can't know for sure, but do you think your gut feeling that some of them secretly respected you for sticking by what your values were, even though it didn't fit in with the culture of the club? Well, I don't think it was a secret. They told me. Oh, and, they did. and so that was, that was really nice because for, there, was, there was always an element of the playing group that just didn't understand it and that's fine. But uh, the players that actually came to me and said that, I really respected that because they, 
they acknowledged that I was different in, in some regards, but they, they were happy that I was there and they respected the fact that I could be in those spaces with them but still hold on to the values that, that I wanted to. Mm. Perhaps soon after you were given a leadership role. I think it was at the age of 22, is that correct? Yeah, well, to be elevated to a leadership role in an AFL club is, is something very special and I was fortunate enough to be viewed by my peers as a leader from a very young age. So, yeah, 22 was the first time I was elected to represent the playing group. So it's, it was a leadership group of five players. I was put in that in that role. And for me, it was a real confirmation that, that I had charted the right course. Wonderful. Now, fast-forwarding to your retirement from professional football, by this time you were married, two beautiful daughters, and soon after you completed your university degree in pharmacy. Tell us about the next chapter. Well, the next chapter involved moving to Broome. My wife and I had always had designs to live away from Perth for a time after I'd finished football and tied up all my university studies. We had wanted to immerse ourselves in another culture that we might that we might or learn something and give our two daughters an experience that would help shape their worldview. So the initial idea was actually to move to Mauritius. However, this fell through for a variety of reasons and some friends encouraged us to consider Broome. So in the space of about three months, we were suddenly up in Broome with, with a plan to, to just be there for one year, but it, it ended up turning into three. Right. Just to clarify for our listeners that might not be familiar with the geography of Western Australia, <laughs> uh, Broome is... Broome is right at the top of Western Australia. It's a reasonably small town, but during the tourist season, it can swell to something like 50,000, 60,000 people. But it uh, is in a region called the Kimberley, which is very much the outback of Australia. And uh, the other, I guess, exciting prospect of moving up there was that we'd be able to immerse ourselves a bit more in in Indigenous culture. Mm. And tell us about that. How did that go? A white... (laughs) privileged Australian guy moving up to Broome. Yeah, yeah, it was it was an interesting time and again I was very aware that I was a white privileged uh, well health professional too. I worked in the hospital as a clinical pharmacist and so for some time I felt like just another white man coming up there telling our Indigenous friends to take better care of themselves and it was a very difficult space to negotiate the health space because I was also an ex-footballer and a lot of people recognised me from that profession and so it was, a very, it was very difficult to try, and <laughs> to try and move the conversation away from football and a bit more to their health. Up in the Kimberley there's, there's three very important things and I call them the three Fs. Mm-hmm. So it's footy, it's family and it's fishing and you need to be able to know a bit about all three. Unfortunately, fishing, I, I let everybody down, right. but I could certainly speak to football and family. Fantastic. And so what, what sort of activities were you involved in and what, what did you do and what was that experience like? It was an incredible experience and we're so fortunate we did it. We, we certainly had times where we felt like coming home and it's like anything and perhaps even in that journey we spoke about with me starting out in the AFL, there was, there was discomfort, there was pain, things were different. There were, there were cultural barriers. We were away from family. It was hot. My daughters were pretty emotional about leaving Perth. Part of the experience was to, was to seek a bit of discomfort for our family because we quite easily could have stayed in Perth. We had good jobs. We have a nice home. We could have continued quite happily. We had nice friends, nice neighbours. But the point of it was to shake things up a bit. The point of it was to 
put ourselves in a place that was a bit uncomfortable so that we might learn something, so that we can grow a bit in some way and that we would become stronger for it. And so that was the point of it. And I think we ticked all those boxes. And we're so thankful that we stayed for the time that we did too because one year wouldn't have been enough. It would have felt like almost an extended holiday. But after three years being in a place, you really become a part of the furniture. And we learn a lot about ourselves. We learn a lot about other people. And we had experiences up there that we never, ever would have had had we stayed in Perth. And Luke, in the introduction, I said that you channeled your spiritual values to give back to the community. Can you expand on that in terms of what that actually looked like when you were there? So I think a lot of people that move to these regions want to help. You seem to find a lot of people up there that are there in perhaps a health capacity or, or some other capacity there for a government agency. They're trying to help. And, and so that was certainly our sense too when we moved up there. We wanted to do something we wanted to contribute in some way. And so unfortunately, you, you can't always help in the way you would like. And so a really important learning for us was not so much, much to go and help everyone we could see, but to make really strong connections with people. And to do that, I think you need to, to come to those spaces with humility and not a paternalistic attitude that you are in some way going to help somebody that's less fortunate than you, but to come into the space hoping to learn something. I think it's, that's a good perspective. And so we were very fortunate to, to become close, particularly with, with one Indigenous family up there that we, we spent a lot of time with. And it was very much a sharing space. And we, we learnt a lot about their background and their story and their culture and the way that they view the world. And we were able to share a little bit about, about our background and our story. The outcome of all of that was, I believe, the establishment of, of mutual bonds of love and respect, which, which is really what we wanted from this experience. That sounds wonderful, Luke. And I've heard some of the Aboriginal elders, particularly Dr. Marion Rose Ungamar Borman, who was the 2021 Senior Australian of the Year. She's an Aboriginal activist, educator, artist. And I've heard her speak so beautifully with such humility. And she often uh, says that it's been a one-way road where the, the Indigenous people have listened and listened and listened and what she's humbly requesting and other Aboriginal uh, elders and communities, from my understanding, is they want it to be a two-way street mm. where we do some of the listening and we do some of the learning and it sounds like this is exactly what your family did. Well, my sense of it too was that we need to do most of the listening and, again, I, I went up with this idea of I'm going to help people and I'm going to raise people up and, and sort out their problems but it, it was more about sitting down with people and listening. And and I heard some amazing stories. And and you, you think the stolen generation is still walking around. It's it's such recent history. And so the stories you hear from from that generation, are, you just can't relate to them, you know, given my background and what we've touched on a bit earlier. And so to listen to that and, and to try and understand that is a very important process. And perhaps it's not the time for fixing everything. Maybe it's just the time for listening. Perhaps listening will do some of the fixing. Mm, yeah. Quite possibly. Yeah. And Luke, during your time in Broome, I imagine there were many moments that touched your soul or highlights that will stay with you for years to come. Is there any in particular that stands out for you? Yeah, there was a, an amazing moment which happened last year. And so it was our final year in Broome. We'd been there for a, a good long time. And it was with this family that we'd become so close with. So we were camping together on a beach near Beagle Bay, which is a, a small town a couple of hours north of Broome, up the peninsula. 
And so we're very isolated uh, on their land and we're sitting around a campfire and it was this family plus all their extended family. So it was quite a, a large gathering. And we were singing songs, we were laughing, we were telling stories. And at one point, the matriarch of the family stood up and gave this impromptu and impassioned speech about our two families and how we had drawn together through mutual love and trust. And she announced that we were now a part of her family forever. And this was from a woman who, that barely said a word to us for months when we first moved up. So we were coming from a long way back. And so to have her stand up and say that was a powerful moment. And I reflected later how in this current climate of racial tension and inequality, to share a space like that with two families from entirely different circumstances and feel so connected speaks to, I think, what's possible in the effort to tear down these social constructs. And it starts, as it always does, with mutual love and trust. That's beautiful, Luke. Thank you for sharing that. And thank you for being here. And I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to you. Thanks again. Thanks, Farrah. I'd also like to thank our listeners and our great team who work behind the scenes to bring mind and soul matters to you. If you wish to keep up to date with new episodes, follow Mind and Soul Matters on Instagram, Facebook, and on your preferred podcast app. All available for free, including on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and our website, mindandsoulmatters.podbean.com. Think of two friends that might be interested in Mind and Soul Matters and share with them. If they're new to podcasting, show them how it all works. Look forward to your company next time on Mind and Soul Matters.